everyone, and welcome back to The V Word. Vagina, vagina, vagina. Today we're gonna to be talking about something that we've had a lot of requests for and that's been on our list for a while, postpartum depression. So this is such an important topic because it's a lot more common than you may think and because of the sheer lack of support for many women going through it is just really astounding. Yeah. We're also gonna be talking to some women who have actually gone through this and hear their stories directly, but first, the news. Okay, I think, um, Instead of like us just each doing one news topic, I wanted to, and tell me what you think about this, I just want to focus on the abortion news that came out of New York State this last week, mostly because I think yes. it's such big news. Yes, I completely agree, especially because it's been very poorly portrayed by many people in the media, and I think it's a little bit confusing to people. So I think, yes, yeah. let's do it. Okay, so let me just, maybe it's best if I just give you sort of like a primer. So in, in yeah. looking into this a lot, um, and again, we're prefacing this by saying that we're not legal experts, we're not policy experts, we're medical experts. So we can um, sort of break down the law as best we understand it, um, and then also get into how this directly affects patients, which I don't think you're going to find anyone who knows more than us about that. Um, okay, so in terms of the law, the Reproductive Health Act is a state law that uh, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, um, passed in New York last week. And what it does is three things. So number one, it makes it so that uh, mid-level providers, so like nurse practitioners, midwives, people who are specifically trained and credentialed um, but are not MDs can do abortions. And that actually has been really, really well studied. There was a study out of California several years back where they looked to see if mid-level providers could provide abortion and if it would change the safety. And guess what? It didn't. It was just as safe. Because there are also people who have been very well trained and it's a very easy and um, straightforward procedure. And in right. fact, in California, that this New York law is now consistent with California where mid-level practitioners can right. provide abortions. Right. It's not the first law state no. to do that. The other thing it did was it moved uh, abortion out of the criminal sector into the health care sector in Which, terms like, of how like the... The law is um, written and, um, I guess, housed. That part, which seems like duh, right? It should not. Why is it criminal? It should, I, of course, be healthcare. Abortion is healthcare. And I know there's more logistics about that that we won't get into because I yeah. think it doesn't. It's not sort of like the big hitting or the meat of this, which is the third and final port part um, that says basically abortion can happen up until 24 weeks unless you have two other situations arise. One is the health and wellness of the mother, and specifically they're talking about women with very, very severe health conditions who may die if they continue with the pregnancy, whose life is really in jeopardy, or if the fetal, uh, if the fetus is uh, non-viable. And I want to clarify that, right, because when this was presented in the news, you'll see this last week, it was, modif uh, it was uh, represented in such a way that abortion is going to be legal up until term or up until the third trimester. It's legal to These, end like, your absurd, pregnancy up to eight months. And it's so not absurd. true. This it's is, so I absurd. Mean, it, it is very convenient, I think, for that side to use that rhetoric and to use that narrative because it really incites a gut feeling, right? It really makes you feel like, oh, my God, no, I don't want to do that. Like, why would I end yes. a pregnancy at eight months? You could just have a C-section if the woman's life is in danger, right? I like, can't even wrap my head around how anyone could think that was a thing. No, it, it's not. It's really, Certainly really, no one medical think, should think that is a thing. It's not. A, well, that's the thing. Like, So I was on Twitter this weekend, and there was this physician, I'm forgetting his name, Omar something or other, and one of our listeners, thank you, uh, 
um, I should have written your name down, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, looped us into the conversation and said, hey, this person, this actual MD is saying that he's an OBGYN, he's had thousands of deliveries under his belt, and he's saying that this is not an actual thing, it would never happen, there's never a fetal indication for which, um, or a maternal indication for which the pregnancy should be aborted. And I wrote back and said, you know, hold on, let's clarify this. Don't make it sound like someone's doing a DE in the third trimester. That would never happen. It would be something like um, potassium chloride or digoxin, one of these medications to make the fetal heartbeat stop and then do the preg and then basically vaginally deliver. And, the and then he shot back saying, yeah. even then, you could still do, you know, a C-section or delivery or whatever. It, like, why would you do that into the third trimester? And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one's talking about the third trimester. They just said after 24 weeks. So, and I'll tell you why I can, I feel so confidently, even though it's not explicitly written like this in the law, that this is what it means in a second. But they're talking about someone who's like, 25 weeks or, you know, in that gray zone, a little bit of viability, right? Because remember 24 yeah. weeks, the viability point, just for listeners, that's what we've currently said. At that point, if you were to deliver, the chance of survival is only 50%, but the chance of not having like a serious life impacting condition, cerebral palsy or something else where this, this, you know, now child uh, who is born will have a life altering condition is much lower than that. We're talking like 10%. It's incredibly, incredibly rare and very low the chance that you're going to have um, a normal life. Anyway, so 24 weeks. So I, I said to him, like, no, it's more like 25 weeks, mm -hmm. and you're talking about someone maybe who has, like, pulmonary hypertension, like some kind of maternal condition. Or a condition. new diagnosis. I feel like a the, cancer. Re the recent things that have come up for us mm -hmm. is a a recent diagnosis of cancer that then they then have yeah. to receive treatment for. Right. Someone who has a pregnancy affected by an abnormal placenta that would make it unsafe to continue. Right. So, I mean, you we can as medical There's so people, many reasons. I like, right. can't even... Right. It's very easy for you and me to imagine these situations because we know. I can think of women in my head well, right now. Because we're taking care had, of these women, We're taking right? care of these people. But I want to just like paint this picture to listeners. Imagine for a second that you are pregnant, you're just past 24 weeks, which is the point of viability. Someone gives you the horrifying news that you have got stage three, stage four cancer. You don't have that long to live, a couple months to live maybe. You've got kids at home. You are now trying to decide what to do with your life and you're still pregnant. You've still got several more weeks to go of the pregnancy, but you know your doctors have told you that continuing that pregnancy will kill you faster, for sure. And you may not even make it that much longer, meaning your child, you know, potentially may not even have a chance at having a normal life. It's not, I mean, you may hear that scenario and be like, absolutely, I would, you know, end my life shorter, faster, quicker, so that this... Uh, sure, and we would support that choice, absolutely. right? You have that, you have that yeah. right. My point is not to uh, say we need to decide the moral answer to this, right? Because abortion, you cannot answer moral questions with scientific answers and you cannot answer scientific questions with moral answers. The two are separate. And so each person makes a separate, um, you know, decision about what is best for their life. And we cannot make a blanket statement law saying, regardless of whatever horrific situation you're in, this is the law you need to follow. Like at the end of the day, we're not talking about the morality of abortion, right? Everyone's allowed to feel a certain way about that. Absolutely. We're talking about what the law should be. And the right. law does not involve a politician who does not have medical expertise. Or the law should be based on what you and I know is best as trained, yeah. empathetic 
and a very positions. intense counseling discussion with a patient. Absolutely. And I think one thing that gets lost in these is is these pregnancies are typically incredibly wanted pregnancies. Oh yeah. Women who are 26, 20 more than 24 weeks pregnant have known they were pregnant. They have they are very interested most often in continuing their pregnancies at that right. point. And the people that who this affects are grieving because either they have found out that something is wrong with their pregnancy and so that they the, the fetus will never go on to become a baby yeah. for whatever reason with a lethal anomaly. We can talk about what those are. Okay, well, here, hold on. Another yeah. scenario. What about your 20... 20- Four weeks and three days, and for whatever reason, you didn't have prenatal care, and you just found out your fetus does not have a head. You have anencephaly. I've seen it many yeah. times. It's not an. Then it's not. A, yeah. You're you're gonna be forced to carry this all the way to forty weeks, and basically yeah. watch that now baby once it's born at term struggle to breathe because it doesn't have a head. Like, are you effing kidding me? Like, why would we force women to do no, any sorry. of that? No, I'm sorry. I feel so passionate about that because we cannot say, okay, well, in that situation, it's okay, but if you've got cancer, it's not okay. You can't parcel it out yeah. like that. Why and, and why are why are people trying to do that with laws instead of protecting the dis- that discussion with uh, right. someone's medical professional right. and the woman and her family Which, themselves? Okay, so Erica, this brings me to a really important point. I don't okay. want to like belabor this, but you can tell that I could. This is like I could get yeah. on the soapbox for for effing ever. But one really important thing that people don't realize with this law is that New York is not the first state to do this. No. So w- I'm going to say why are they doing it, and then who else is doing it? Okay. So basically, when you look back at the original Roe language, yes, this, is, very this is exactly what it said. Yes. Roe did not say you can only go to 24 weeks. Roe v. Wade said this exact language, like up until 24 weeks, and then after that, case by case, based on the exact scenario, like based on if a woman's life is in danger, if the fetus is not going to live. Mm-hmm. So what happened is New York, anticipating that the Supreme Court has changed and that, you know, let's be honest, shit's going down. Like, I don't know if Roe's going to be protected in the years to follow. They proactively made this choice to protect the women in New York and say, you know what, regardless of what happens nationwide, we're going to uphold Roe. We're going to uphold the original language and with that portion anyway. Okay, who else is doing that? Maryland, Colorado, New Mexico, all of those states already have the same laws in place. And do you, I mean, in those states, do you see abortions happening willy-nilly at eight months? No. I know, so there, I can think of the two providers who um, famously, one in Colorado, one in New Mexico, who do these cases, and they are incredibly, incredibly selective, even of the people that they'll consider caring for, because it is so emotionally charged, because it's not black and white. It's very gray. And I think this is like the most extreme example of all the hoops that a woman has to go through in order to obtain an abortion because literally to see these two providers people have to like buy a plane ticket get a hotel go usually go through like several more providers to get to them and so it's this is not like a willy-nilly dis- decision well, this is not a, a casual you need a referral basically yeah. from like you know like a, a, a reasonable right from physician. like your, your your first line OBG um, abortion provider yeah. And then they refer you to this person. I mean, it is like sub sub specialized. Because yeah. it, it's a because it is a they do need very special training. It is really yeah. important. But I think it is sometimes viewed as this like I don't understand this like casualness of you could just do a C section, but now you can do abortion at nine months. Like no, that is so callous and well, it's ignorant. It's coming it's so from ignorant. it. It's coming from it from a place of not understanding medicine, the medicine, and how <laughs> Among it, other how things. it would actually go down, how it would actually happen. Yeah. And I, you know, like, again, 
we're gonna get to postpartum depression. This is like a really sad <laughs> episode so far. I know. Man. It's like my gallus humor. But which is like funny because we're we're like actually so happy with New York, so proud of <laughs> I'm the so New York. So pissed off and so happy. <laughs> we're so proud of the New York Senate. We're so proud of of Governor Cuomo. But we are. It's it's the reaction to it has been um, both really awesome in the um, pro choice and women supporting women community, but has been sort of striking mm-hmm. in the misunderstoodness. Yeah. Um, uh, whether intentional or not, in right. the in the anti-choice and anti-woman community. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. But I think that, yeah, I don't know. I think that that sums up everything I have to say about this right now. Yeah. I, I could go on and on forever and ever, but I feel like maybe we should get to the topic yeah, at hand. Yeah, although I want to just invite people to ask us questions because as people that do care for women, that do care for women who have to make these really crazy decisions, we... Uh, and who are medical experts, we would love to answer any questions, any legitimate questions that people have about this because um, we want to make sure it's it's clear. Uh, okay. Anyway. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about okay. something, something slightly lighter, <laughs> like postpartum depression. Postpartum okay. So, although delivering a baby is typically a very happy event, right, many postpartum women develop uh, depressive symptoms and disorders that can manifest in a wide spectrum of symptoms. And we're going to break that down, that spectrum down in terms of um, the symptom severity, talk about some of the numbers about exactly how many people are really affected by this, and then also wrap up with some personal stories of people who've gone through this, um, and then resources to help. Very important, the resources to help. But so first, what is postpartum depression? So postpartum depression is depression that occurs in the direct postpartum period, which we typically think of as the first three months after a delivery. But it can really be any time within the first year. And we've mentioned before on this podcast that actually there is like another very vulnerable time uh, around the weaning of breastfeeding, if that's something that women are choose to and are able to do, that is maybe gets a little bit less attention, but but is is also there. Um, and while we talk about as this happening postpartum, we should really be rephrasing this as peripartum or yeah. throughout mm-hmm. throughout the pregnancy experience depression, um, because it can really occur before, like before delivery, um, during delivery certainly, and then also after. Right, anytime really. So um, a person with postpartum depression might experience feelings of anger, sadness, irritability, guilt, lack of interest in the baby. They can have changes in eating and sleeping habits, trouble concentrating, uh, thoughts of hopelessness, and sometimes even thoughts of harming the baby or um, themselves. And there's a spectrum of these symptoms um, that I want to explore just a little bit first, like you were saying. So postpartum blues is a term that's often used to describe mild depressive symptoms that are generally self-limited. And that's like an actual medical term, postpartum blues. Um, You can have isolated postpartum anxiety, which are feelings of constant worry, racing, thoughts, sleep or appetite disturbances, or feeling like something bad is going to happen, but separate from the depression symptoms. You can have pregnancy-related OCD. This is one that's often glossed over, but a condition where you can have really intrusive, persistent thoughts or mental images that are related to the baby, obsessions or this sense of horror uh, about the obsessions, like... um, maybe even hypervigilance in protecting the infant. And I want to just stop for a second and say that there's also a spectrum of normal 
um, sort of changes in anxiety and um, normal worry, hypervigilance, and yeah, normal worry, normal vigilance, normal sleep disturbances that happen after a baby. And so this can sometimes be a barrier in women seeking care or even recognizing these shifts because Mm -hmm. they're, they're, dismissed not just by women themselves but by the people in their lives as like oh no that's just what happens when you have a baby but this is really like these symptoms are interfering with your ability to function Mm -hmm. in a way that feels like um it's it's not uh your quality of life is really being impacted but we recognize that this is a little bit tricky as your quality of life is impacted by having a baby Mm -hmm. sort of by definition Mm -hmm. Uh, So pregnancy-related PTSD, this is a huge issue that I think we don't talk enough about. It's often caused by real or even perceived traumas that occur around childbirth, like say you have an emergency C-section or a hemorrhage, or they had to use a vacuum or forceps to get the baby out, um, or your baby was sent unexpectedly to the NICU. These people can have pervasive flashbacks or nightmares about these events that really affect their well-being also. And and just like any type of PTSD, it doesn't have to be any of these situations. Mm-hmm. There can be things that we wouldn't identify as traumatic, that yeah. women self-identify as traumatic. Um, and this comes up a lot with um, women of color and things like that where there are things that they experience that feel so traumatic within this period of time that... It, it's scarring going on. So it's I think just like culturally, yeah, or, just well, yeah. just like within all the systemic racism within the medical system. You mean how we're awful the people of color, like famously for centuries? Yes, okay. yes, okay. that that thing. <laughs> cool. Yes. Um, bipolar disorders and even postpartum psychosis. This is a more severe condition manifested by delusions, hallucinations, hyperactivity, paranoia. So it's really a spectrum. Um, you know, I like to talk about movies. Have you, you seen do- the movie Tully? No. You have to see this movie. It's so good. I'm going to read you the synopsis from, from the movie. It's not so that I'm going to try to, like, not give wait, a spoiler Wait, didn't we already talk about this? Did we give it? I don't know. Yes, we already again. talked Whatever. about this one. <laughs> I'm doing it again because this is a synopsis. Yet I ha- but I also haven't seen it since you told okay. me about it. Marlo is a New York su- uh, suburbanite who is about to give birth to her third child. Her husband, Ron, is living and works hard. Oh, loving. <laughs> He's living. He's loving and works hard, but remains clueless about the demands that motherhood puts on his life. Uh, on his wife. I can't read, sorry. <laughs> when the baby is born, Marlo's wealthy brother hires a nighttime nanny named Tully to help his sister handle the workload. Hesitant at first, Marlo learns to appreciate all that Tully, Tully does, forming a special bond with her new life-saving friend. Okay, actually, now I remember you talking to me about this movie, yeah. and I really don't want to spoiler alert it, because that's, like, the oh, whole point so of the movie. It's so, oh my god, yeah. you guys. I'm but just now that say, I know what happens, I'm, like, freaked out again right now. No, don't be scared. Don't be scared, because I know you're, like, in newly postpartum. No babies get hurt. No, that's not what's scary. Okay, but it involves postpartum psychosis. And I feel like that's a little bit of a spoiler alert. I'm not going to say how, but whatever, guys. Watch this movie. It's like, it has a really cool twist. And it's um, Charlize Theron? And it's Charlize Theron. Who's just like amazing. Badass. Some other notable people who have had postpartum Wait, are they all going to be the disorders? movies? No, 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 no. These ones aren't movies. These are just people who have actually come out, like celebrities who have come out and said that they've suffered with postpartum depression. Wait, should we give them shout-outs? Yes, absolutely. Like, snaps. Praise be to all these women. Okay. Not psychosis necessarily, although Brooke Shields, I think hers was teetering on that, and she talks about that. Um, But I don't know the severity of these other ones. So Brooke Shields, Amanda Peet, Hayden uh, Panettiere, Courtney Cox, Bryce Dallas Howard. The list goes on. Good for you. All of you people, thank you for talking about your experiences. Thank you so much for being open about this because it's really, really common. And... Yeah. And just and, how common is it? And it's not, and it's not, gla- it's, it is, um, the postpartum period is often over glamorized. So thanks for being glamorous people that 
um, yeah. are make, keeping it real. Okay, so the breakdown of numbers, let's talk about that. You know I like the numbers. Um, affected by these conditions is really important. So it's generally thought that about one in seven mothers and one in ten fathers are affected by postpartum depression. So it's a lot more common than most people realize. And I like that they talk about the fathers there. Yes, and I think we should maybe talk about that a little bit more because is it do you think these are the fathers of women who are have postpartum depression or do no you think knows. it is I don't know. I mean people probably fathers know. who have their own postpartum depression. I don't know. Yeah, I think I, don't I think, think it's explored enough. We don't know enough. Yeah, I think this is uh, something that we should talk more about as a society in terms of just like yeah. the impact of a shift of having a baby mm-hmm. on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, because it changes things about a partnership, it changes things about everything. everything. Uh, and makes both partners a little bit less available to support each other, which yeah. really changes things from potentially other time time periods when yeah. you'd have depression. Yeah. So isolated anxiety is also pretty common. Uh, 6% of pregnant people and 10% of postpartum people uh, have have anxiety that's diagnosable as a problem. And these numbers are coming from one of our favorite resources for pregnancy-related mood disorders, which we'll give more info about at the end of the show, called Postpartum Support International. Wait, speaking of um, changing relationships, I just had this thought. I was I saw this post on Instagram. Again, God, I need to like write these down so I can give a shout-out. I forgot who posted this, but it was this um, article that was written on like how this couple kept their uh, romance life alive despite like having several children oh, wait, and going through Oh wait, I think this. I read this too. And wait, there's like an, it's an older couple. They're like in their 60s, I think. And it's a picture of them naked, but you can only see the woman from behind and she's um, topless and shaving her husband's head. And they're talking about how like once a week, every single time at the same time, she either in the nude or topless grooms him. And it's this very intimate, okay, like... Wait, I definitely haven't read this no, article. No, at, first, at first I was like, oh, this is a little weird. But then I was like, oh, this is really cute, actually. Like, it's this very intimate time that they just have together that even though it's not, like, sex, they're preserving their intimacy and just, like, bringing it back down to, like, the raw, this is you and me. I think it's that we... us. We get a lot of requests, and I think we need to be thoughtful about doing an episode about sex after pregnancies, because I think that a lot of people have questions about that, and we got to think of, like, who who should we interview for that? You've got a postpartum vagina. You may not want to have sex, but maybe shave your husband's head topless. (laughs) That's, like, so unappealing to me. Sorry, honey. Okay. Uh, Let's get back to the topic at hand. So postpartum OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder is a little bit more rare. So about three to five percent of people, though, it's not clear if that any of these numbers are underestimates based on what we've seen. Clin- like based on what we've seen clinically, I feel like it would I don't be know. higher, I think right? The OCD maybe like we maybe just we maybe it's where we're located. Maybe there's. Maybe it's just where we're located. Like we're in a mm. we're in a like highly yeah, compulsive controlling. I mean, yeah. us included. That's yeah. Um, <laughs> and then PTSD is almost 10% of deliveries. That is nuts. Like, one in 10 women has trauma from their delivery. This Mm-mm. experience that in the movies and in, mm-hmm. you know, in everything is supposed to be this, like, Glamorous. beautiful yeah. and, yeah, like, completely positive experience is, which was, yeah. which like, is for everyone not just a positive experience, If one experience, in ten women right? walking around is traumatized by her birth, well, I'll tell you, like, straight out the gate, like, that is not something that we learned in residency how to handle. No. We're right. like, cool, wait, and, and have a baby, get out of here. Actually, well, not really, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like... Yes. This actually reminds me of an article that just came out in our Green Journal 
in, in January. Which is the journal for oh, yeah. the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, ACOG. Our, love, our, love, our beloved ACOG. Our beloved ACOG. So there was an article that, shoot, I meant to talk about. Uh, Whatever. This is your in, in little mini news. <laughs> little mini news. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, cite the source uh, so you all can read it if you want to. But I'll just interpret it for you, which is it basically looked, dance. <laughs> I'm interpretive dancing right now. You just can't tell about about trauma at women's births. So actually, no. This isn't. This is a qualitative research study, which means it's not trying to get any numbers, but actually hearing themes of women's stories about trauma surrounding their um, births. So this article looked at women who had had previous PTSD, who then went on to have a pregnancy and a delivery and ask them about sort of that experience and what that was like because we're right we're talking about right now is like trauma from your delivery mm-hmm. there's also women we know that like about one in four women has experienced some sort of sexual trauma in her mm-hmm. life and then how they bring that yeah. experience yeah, to yeah, yeah. their delivery experience right. and as far as I know this is one of the first real studies that's been published on this and it had so many interesting themes so yeah Maybe we'll see if we can... We can put in the show notes. I'll put in the show notes, yeah, and yeah. then I might... You want to read about that? We might have to contact them to see more okay. thoughts on that. Okay, sorry. That was, like, really getting off topic. No, I like um, it. And then postpartum psychosis, which may or may not be in the movie Tully, is thankfully super rare. <laughs> it happens in... Jenna's laughing about Tully, not about postpartum psychosis. I got, I'm laughing because I got it from my dad. Like, he spoils every single movie. He'll be like, hey, did you see that, that new... too. What is it about? He's like, you see that new movie where, like, the killer turns out to be the young brother? And I'm like, what the fuck? We, we just saw we saw a movie. We just saw one of. I'm not actually. I'm not gonna tell you what movie yet because I'm gonna spoil it. But I, so my husband to watch and I it were and like, which one you spoil? We were like, uh, we're gonna watch this movie. And my dad was like, why everyone dies in the end? We were like, what? <laughs> we were like, why would you say that? Dude, all uh, men stop guys, it. My dad listens to every podcast episode. He's gonna I love, love this I'm just part. What's his name again? Nick. Nick. Hi, Nick. I love you. You you have birthed. I mean, you've raised a lovely, lovely woman. <laughs> Who doesn't ruin the endings of movies? She usually. doesn't watch movies, so she can't ruin them. That's so true. I can't ruin <laughs> any movies. Okay, we're just trying to like have some light moments within this very depressing okay, topic. Okay. But back, hold on, back to the topic. I think, I think one of the really fascinating things that um, is that it's so incredibly common, but still we don't completely understand why it happens, right? So That's so true. What we do know, though, are there are several risk factors. So things like a personal or family history of depression, anxiety, postpartum depression. This, interestingly, is the factor that has the largest effect on eventually developing postpartum depression. So, Wait, which is not surprising, right? No, this, no, but it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So one example, this is a study from the Journal of Comprehensive Psychiatry, found that the risk of perinatal, so before and after, pregnancy, uh, depression, was more than double in women with a prior history of depression compared to women who didn't have a history of depression. Which seems, oh, I actually have to confess something to you, Jen. My first job out of college, I was a research coordinator working at Mass General in a wonderful center called the Center for Women's Mental Health on research studies about this, about depression and pregnancy. Maybe you're in this study. Uh, I'm not in that study. My first job was a fitness coordinator at Curves for Women. Out of college? No. Yes. Wow. Really? Don't get me started. Curves for women. Get it, Jen. Okay. <sighs> but in in my job, I feel like one of the the themes that kept up kept coming up again and again was just sort of how your this 
like again and again that pregnancy and the postpartum period are such a vulnerable time period Mm -hmm. that people who have depression for whatever reason, and we don't understand any other type of depression either um, from a scientific standpoint, Mm -hmm. this vulnerable period of time can really reveal that in a different, in another way. It's just, and, and people need to, we could be better at anticipating and protecting that. Yeah. So other risk factors, PMS, interestingly, um, inadequate support for caring for the baby, duh. Yeah, Financial stress, marital stress, uh, complications in the pregnancy or even with um, the birth or breastfeeding. Which is sort of like PTSD Mm -hmm, related. mm -hmm. Major recent life events like loss, a house move, job loss. Which like PS happens in every pregnancy, right? Like I feel like everyone is moving. Major, I know, major recent life event, like having a baby. Like having a baby. (laughs) Um, if you've got twins or triplets, multiples, then you like double the trouble. Uh, if your baby's on the NICU or oh, yeah, um, also super interesting, uh, if you've gone through infertility treatments. And this, I think, is fascinating because you know, I've talked with several women who have had postpartum depression and who also had, had like IVF, for example. And I think that some of it stems from this feeling of like extreme guilt because you spend so much time and money and effort oh, yes. to get pregnant. And it's all you want in the world, and you're trying so hard. And then when it finally happens, you're so grateful. And then all of a sudden, at the end, it's not all that like as glamorous as well, it's, it's supposed not, to be. Or, it's just not only that, right? Like I think there's this expectation that's what that, they're feeling though. Right. They're feeling like this is not how it was supposed to be. Oh my god! Or and the yeah. guilt and like you can never guilt. you can never be happy or grateful enough when you've gone through so yeah. much IVF yeah, 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 or yeah, so many yeah. things to have this that's baby. So. But they're, Interesting. I think it's a very human experience to, of having a baby yeah. to feel many f- conflicting feelings right. at the same yeah. time. Um, so aside from risk factors, some factors that may be involved in postpartum depression are things like genetic susceptibility and hormonal changes, right? Like if you're genetically more predisposed. But the hormones, I think, is interesting. And yeah. people, it's Tell one thing that people like to I talk like about. So in terms of hormones, changes in the blood concentrations of hormones um, like estrogen and progesterone, um, when those drop, can increase your chance of having depression. Other changes with cortisol, melatonin, oxytocin, and those thyroid hormones can also happen. Which all happen in pregnancy, right? Yeah, well, so these these changes happen to every woman, right? But it's thought that there are some people who may be more sensitive to the hormonal fluctuations, and maybe that plays a role. Hence the people who potentially have PMS or PMDD. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. really, maybe we should be talking more with women about what their menstrual symptoms are well, in preparation of how they might feel about pregnancy. But I think, Do you think that's predictive? Like with mental health research, they're going to hopefully get to a point where they can, you know, just tailor medicine and like pharm- what's it called? Um, Pharmaco- pharmacogenetics. No, oh, there's like a word. Is that it? Where it's like very tailored treatment and medication for your yeah, specific... like individualized medicine. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And um, anyway, so there's this. Here's a really crazy example of this. Researchers have actually studied this. They've des- designed a study to mimic the hormonal changes that occur at birth, and then they compared eight women with a history of postpartum depression to eight women without any history, and all the women were given super physiologic doses of estrogen and progesterone, so really high levels, and then they withdrew them over four weeks, so mimicking that period again and found that five out of the eight women with the history of postpartum depression had increased depressive symptoms during that withdrawal phase compared to none of the women without any history of depression. This is fascinating and I hope these women were paid so well. Oh yeah, they're basically they got like so much money. Going through a traumatic, they're like Hey, you want to feel really training. shitty for a couple weeks? Yeah. For, like for the good of science? They're like in Navy SEAL training of postpartum depression. That's a good way, you know what? That's a good way to praise it. I like that. But uh, that's, I mean, that is unsurprising and very, but helpful to know. Yeah. Um, that's sort of like an interesting scientific experiment that is really trying to like science, scienceify something. Yeah. 
Um, I think we should have like PR, like a whole PR campaign where like we show women as like warriors going through it. Uh, yes, through birth. Yeah, with like an American flag and an eagle in the background. I don't want to fire out of birth. Okay, fireworks <laughs> maybe. Okay, another interesting thing about postpartum depression is the timing of it all. So when people are diagnosed with postpartum depression, about 20% of the time, the depression actually starts pre-pregnancy. Mm-hmm. About 40% of the time, it starts during pregnancy. And then truly postpartum only happens at about 42% of the cases. And this is from a study from the Journal of Affective Disorders. So in those women where depression starts truly in the postpartum period or after delivery, the onset appears to occur most often within the first few... The onset appears to occur most often within the first few months. So now this, is, this one is from another study from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry that depression started in the first month postpartum in 54% of these women and in the second month for 40% of these women up to the fourth month. In the second to fourth. Oh, yeah. In the second to fourth month postpartum in 40% of women. Oh, wait, hold on. I feel like I did that whole sentence kind of weird because I didn't know how it was going to end. Okay. So from another study in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, depression started in the first month postpartum in about 54% of women, in the second to fourth month postpartum in about 40% of women, and then in the fifth to twelfth month postpartum in another 6%. So much more common to happen in the first four yeah, months postpartum. Like right away. Yeah, which makes sense, yeah, right? Yeah, you're, you're adjusting. You're getting used to all these life changes. Also, ha- you know, in having a less than four-month-old at home, yeah, that, oh, is, that is, like, an incredibly stressful yeah. time. And something about, like, once they start to hit that, like, four- to six-month yeah. period is a little bit... Oh, like the whole fourth trimester. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. This Actually, you know what? I was just reading about this and how um, the first three months of life for babies and the first three months postpartum are much more, like still either still meant to be connected in the womb and that like coming ex- exiting those first three months that yeah real like fourth trimester feeling and um, like is it closer? too close no no closer yeah like oh. right there it's interesting because um one of those like i think when i was postpartum with my second kid i was reading one of those books and they were talking about how like mammals for other mammals like they actually stay in longer like for more brain development and all of that so this fourth trimester really probably sucks for humans the most but we birth them because of the head to body ratio like we We can't wait any longer yeah we can't wait any longer like they need to come out of the body otherwise they won't fit we can't make vaginas bigger vaginas bigger or pelvises um so what happens to people with postpartum depression treatment is essential because it untreated really it impairs maternal functioning it's associated with poor nutrition and health in the offspring and it can really interfere with a lot of things breastfeeding maternal infant bonding care of the infant and other children the woman's relationship with her partner it's also associated with abnormal development cognitive impairment and psychopathology in the kids so on the severe end of the spectrum untreated postpartum depression can lead to child neglect suicide or infanticide even and thankfully this is really really rare but unfortunately it does still happen every day so i wanted to just mention this as an example i don't know if you heard about this but in november so just a few months ago there was a woman actually from the bay area um she was living in bali um and she um threw her two-month-old infant out of a moving car oh my god i know I know. You kind of just want to throw up and cry. Um, And she, I don't know if she's here or still in Indonesia, and she's being held, and they weren't able to eventually, like, or initially get the whole story because she was hospitalized in a severe state of depression. And it just, um, like, 
reading more about this case, she had, she was living there alone. She didn't have much support, whatever. And it, like, whatever, whatever the situation is, this stuff still happens. And this is a person who um, is from, was from like a wealthy background, like just, anyway. Just underscores that it's, that's (sighs) never what mental health is, right? No, no, no. Money is not protective of mental health. Money is not protective. Education is not protective. Like it happens to everyone. And it's just like that this went so far without her finding support or help or whatever is just like heartbreaking. And I think this really emphasizes one important point is that mothers who try to kill their infants are often also, are incredibly depressed and are often trying to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, one study of 10 mothers with postpartum depression who killed their infants found that pre- the pregnancy was wanted and that the baby was healthy, but that the women just felt overwhelmed and were reluctant to be left alone with the baby. And I think, yeah. I feel like this from my clinical experience is that women who, women really are embarrassed to admit that they're having mm. suicidal oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Hom- homicidal or infanticidal yeah. ideations, but Ashamed. they, but they yeah. do other things to try to protect their baby. Like even in this state, they try to protect the baby even from themselves, which oh, is yeah. a crazy yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's also a really good lead into treatment. Um, not because if you don't get treated, the worst case scenario will happen, right? Like this, this horrible thing isn't going to happen to everyone, but rather because it truly feels horrible to be depressed and new mothers deserve to feel better you deserve to feel supported so treatment plans are different for each woman but might include increased self-care social support talk therapy or counseling and or treatment with medication so let's actually and treatment with medication you should probably have all those first things so self-care could include it is important to include proper rest good nutrition assistance with the baby and other children and then caring for personal needs like exercise relaxation time with the partner or spouse or time alone Mm -hmm. social support includes talking with others either on the telephone online or at a support group who understand and can provide encouragement um talking with a counselor or a therapist who understands mood and anxiety disorders particularly in the perinatal period can be very helpful and then medications are available to address both anxiety and depression and are typically ssris or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and these are the antidepressant names that you've heard before, like Selexa, Lexapro, Prozac, all those, those are the brand names for them. And there are so many different types and finding the right medication or dose can take some time, which is okay, but emphasizes the importance of seeking care as soon as possible. Right. So the, repu- the recovery process is different for every woman and it depends on many things, including access to the support, right? And access to healthcare professionals. But the super important message here is that every perinatal mood disorder, no matter how strong the symptoms are, uh, is temporary and treatable. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the the things with depression is this feeling of hopelessness. It's never going to get better. It's yes, it will. It's very, very treatable. Um, Is the really excellent news with postpartum depression. It feels really, really shitty, but it will get better. And so with that, let's take a break. We're going to hear some firsthand stories of what it's like to actually go through this perinatal and postpartum depression. And then we'll talk about where to go if this is something that you or a loved one is dealing with. hardest thing about postpartum depression is that you're under under this idea that it should be such a happy and magical time because you have a new baby which is a wonderful gift and something you've hopefully wanted for and to experience 
like sadness and not even sadness but just apathy um and frustration at kind of what your life has become you just like are stuck in this weird paradox of feeling like you should be happy and so therefore trying to like pretend and make yourself be happy um when really like you just don't feel any happiness inside it was really sad because it's like it's this little one more thing where you feel like a failure because now not only have I like failed you know myself at like not being happy everyone's like these are moments you never get back and I'm like okay now I'm never going to have those happy moments so you've also like obviously failed your kid because you weren't as happy and engaging with them or whatever as you should have been and then is there anything that you like want to say to women who are going through it or who knows someone who's going through it yeah I mean I think the biggest thing is that you are you are not alone if you are not feeling like this is a magical wonderful time in your life having a baby is hard sleep deprivation is used as a form of torture and hormone changes in your brain are chemicals in your brain and therefore they can affect your mood and how you feel and so it is not a rare phenomenon to not kind of enjoy that newborn period. It's quite common. And you should really talk with whoever it is that you trust, whether it's your physician, friends, mother's groups, just to figure out if what you're experiencing is just kind of the normal frustrations about having a new baby or if it's something more. My experience postpartum was, it was a lot more anxiety than it was depression. I think like I was so anxious that it finally just like burned out into being depressed. And I think until I started to feel better, I didn't realize how bad I was feeling. I was like super tired and I had taken, um, like I had taken my son in to see a developmental psychologist to get an evaluation because we had basically been like followed by developmental pediatricians and they had told us like they were concerned about some things with him and like wanted us to basically get him evaluated because they thought he might have autism. And so I remember like he on May 4th got a diagnosis of autism and I was like, I don't know, like six, seven weeks postpartum. And I was like driving home with him and I was just like emotionally destroyed, even though I knew that like that diagnosis was coming. And then I like came home to like a screaming baby and I hadn't slept. And I just like, I couldn't let anyone else take care of her because I felt so responsible for her well-being. Um, And so I was just like, I had like nothing left to give, but like I just kept trying to like take care of her too. And I don't know, my wife basically was like, you need help. Call your mother (laughs) because he won't let me help you. Um, So I did. I called my mom and I was like, I really need help. And I think from there I started to get better because I actually was like actively like I was aware of the fact that I just like was not able to cope on my own anymore. A lot of my anxiety was around like, you know, like bad things happening to my children and like, you know, I would like walk around the house with my daughter and I was like scared that I would like whack her head on the door frame and that she would like have some horrible head injury or like I was scared that like 
she would roll off the changing table, even though I was like literally standing right there with like my hand on her while she was, you know, getting her diaper change or like, I don't know, like she'd be like next to me in the room, like sleeping in like a safe sleep space with like nothing in it. And I was like afraid that she would like die in her sleep. So just like things that, you know, objectively didn't make any sense and like sure, like could potentially happen, but like weren't going to happen. And I just like kept thinking that they would happen. Like I think all of us like evolved to have this like very strong desire to like protect our babies so that they survive. But then like when does that become something that is, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like pathological. And I think that it becomes pathological when it impairs your ability to like function in your daily life and when it causes you distress. And so for me, it was like causing all of this distress and it was like basically like making it so that I was just like, I was pretty impossible to be around. I think I was like super irritable and like just like no one could do anything right with the kids. And like I, I was the only one who could take care of them in my eyes, obviously. Like there were other people who were perfectly capable of taking care of them but like I just couldn't let go of anything I was like so particular and the irony for me was like I actually did much better when I went back to work so I took 12 weeks off but like at 10 I was like desperate to go back to work and then at 12 when I went back to work I think was like when things like really turned around for me because like I finally like got away from this like totally isolating experience or for me it was like a very isolating experience of like new motherhood um you know when I like when I had our daughter, I was like, oh, gosh, like this is horrible. Like, I would never, ever want to be pregnant again, and I would never want to be postpartum again. <laughs> and I, like, love my kids more than anything, but, like, it was awful. It doesn't agree with me. It wasn't a postpartum basket case with, like, hormonal fluctuations and hot flashes and, like, a body that, like, didn't belong to me anymore. Um, and I think for me, like, one of the worst parts of being postpartum and, like, being a new mom who had, like, birthed a baby was breastfeeding. Like, I had no milk, and I just kept trying and, like, never got anywhere. But it took me five months to finally, like, give up and just, like, realize that I was actually, like, doing more harm to my daughter than good in my attempts to make, like, tiny quantities of milk for her. I actually feel really strongly that people need to be aware that you can be a fully functioning member of society and still struggle with anxiety and depression. And I, and I actually feel like that's like one of the things that I took away from this is that I want people to know that that happened to me. And I want people to know that I feel better now because I got help and because people took care of me and because I was able to accept that help. So yeah, like a, a big thing for me is like wanting to take shame away for people because I think I felt very ashamed. And I think that I didn't acknowledge the fact that I needed a lot of support and it was very hard for me to accept support from people. Krista Buckley. I'm a, a psychiatry resident. So full disclosure, I um, have had I'd had an episode of major depression before in my life, and I am in training to be a psychiatrist, and yet I still feel like it took me way too long to figure out what was going on um, after I had my first baby and to really figure out that I was having postpartum depression. Um, and I think it was about uh, when the baby was uh, four months old, so so for those first four months, I was I was really struggling, and um, you know it was just sort of a different 
experience than than the depression I'd had before. Um, I think largely because, you know, you don't know what you're supposed to be experiencing. You know, I think having a baby is, a, you know, a, an intense and challenging and usually also wonderful thing um, for anyone, especially your first baby. So you kind of have this feeling of not knowing what you're supposed to feel like. Um, so it's hard to know when that is off. Um, but I think um, what really tipped it for me, like really understanding was uh, was that I wasn't having any of the positive feelings. You know, I cognitively knew that I loved my baby and was excited, you know, cognitively excited about having a baby and um, doing all the things I was supposed to be doing, but I wasn't feeling any joy. And, um, and again, you know, I was sleep deprived. So I was kind of like, well, maybe I'm just too tired to feel, feel the good things. Um, but I remember the the time I decided to get some help was uh, laying on the floor next to my baby, which was about four months old and her grabbing uh, my face and we were just sort of staring at each other and I realized, you know, that I would want her to get help if this were the way she was feeling. So that kind of prompted me to to seek out um, meeting with my, I was at a family doctor at the time who had delivered um, my daughter and um, I started on a low dose of sertraline or Zoloft and um, I had tried to connect with a counselor, but um, I, due to some, which I would definitely recommend <laughs> to anyone, uh, but I, I think due to some of our like time, financial, transportation issues that, and the available uh, availability, that didn't really work out for me. But I started on Zoloft, and that really um, helped, and I was able to to start to feel some of some of the joy. Um, I think an interesting thing about it was I definitely remember feeling like it was all very hard, but the thought wasn't, I have postpartum depression. My first thought was, despite having always wanted to have kids, multiple kids, my first thought was, um, I made a mistake. Like, I was not supposed to be a mother. Clearly, I was not cut out for this, if this is how I feel about this. Um, and I think now I recently just had my, um, my second daughter and she's just over three months old and it's a totally different experience. And looking back at, you know, myself when I was going through what I was going through, I just have such like empathy for me as a first time mom and having that postpartum depression, like it was it was so, so hard. Um, you know, it's shocking to me as someone who had struggled with depression before and someone who works in this field still not recognizing what was going on. So, you know, I just want to always, like, point out to people, like, yeah, you know, having a baby can be challenging, but if you're not feeling any joy or less joy than you think you should be, or if you're thinking you're a terrible mother or that you made a mistake or, um, you know, you're really struggling to get out of bed in the mornings or anything like that, just 
reach out to your provider and ask. You know, there are easy screening tools they can do with you. There's lots of treatment options. Um, you know, there's a lot of support out there, and most people, um, no one's going to fault you for, for asking or saying you're struggling. So... So as promised, we've got some really great resources to talk about in case you or someone you know is going through postpartum depression. A great place to start is with your OB provider who cared for you during your pregnancy, as they're trained in managing these conditions. Unfortunately, though, we don't always see women bringing these issues up freely in their postpartum visits because there's a lot going on at home with taking a new baby. Mm -hmm. We know that half of women don't even come to their postpartum visits. Um, And as new mothers, and actually older mothers, any mothers, it's easy to put your own well-being and needs mm-hmm. on the back burner. Right. So if talking to a provider directly doesn't feel comfortable, there's a community network of support like new moms or new dads. That can be a great idea. There's also online therapy or therapy over the phone as well. Probably, and you mentioned this earlier, probably my favorite uh, source for this because let's face it, it's super hard to do research on where to find help when you're sleep deprived and depressed. Uh, is a website called Postpartum Support International. And you can find them at www.postpartum.net. Super easy to remember. I love them because they are this one-stop shop with all kinds of resources for the entire family, including my favorite, an online weekly mother's group, a support group that you can join from the comfort of your own home. So you don't even need to leave the home or get dressed. You could just, with your newborn baby, log in however often you want, you know, and just talk it out with other people who are at home in their pajamas going through the exact same thing. And they've also got personalized local recommendations too for where to seek care all over the country if that's something that you want. And a list of lots and lots of additional resources like what to do if you don't have insurance, for example. And I just want to make a kind of final plug for this um, center at the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. They also have a great website and blog, um, and it's www.centerforwomensmentalhealth.org. Um, it's also a great place to find what's happening with new resource, research, new treatments, other things like that. Um, plus, I worked there a really long time ago. Yeah, nice. <laughs> you can also go to our website. We've got a, under the resources tab, we've got a whole section on mental health. So um, postpartum.net is there and other resources. And hopefully this was helpful. Please share widely with anyone you know that this could be helpful to. Yeah, let's talk about this more. Yeah. Bye. Bye. If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening. <laughs>